What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hatness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Jules Gilliland, and we speak about thinking with things. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now lean back to be playfully inspired. Hello, Jules. Welcome to the show. Hello. I'm very excited to be here. Me too. And um, I'm excited to learn more about how to think with things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And bringing toys and creativity into the workshop space. Yeah, it's exciting. And uh, I can't wait to share it with you. Yes. And I always start with the same question, kind of a warm up. <laughs> when did you start calling yourself a facilitator? And actually, do you? No, I don't. I sort of am not against it, but I kind of fight it. I fell into being a, a trainer, a facilitator. But I still really see myself as a designer. And mm. so even when I'm doing a workshop, I feel like I've designed that workshop. And during the workshop, I'm also looking at ways to redesign it for the next time. So, and uh, I used to not really tell my clients that. I used to say, okay, I'm a trainer and da da da. But now actually, I'm really pretty open and I say, I'm a designer, you know, and the trainer sort of just sort of happened. So, and I, thank you for sharing that. And you're in good company. So I think the majority of my podcast guests um, answered the question was no, actually, I don't put the labor facilitate on my forehead. And I'm just intrigued by the all the different answers. And what I find interesting is when I hear designer, I think of all the work that comes before you step into the space. Absolutely. And I think that for me is the most exciting part, mm. not only the before, but also the after, uh, like trying to do it better the next time. You know, seeing different things that I've done and saying, okay, that felt a little awkward. How could I design it in a way that makes it less awkward next time? Um, so I think when I'm actually in the day, I am kind of just winging it, I'll say, because I've sort of designed it beforehand, not even planned it so much, but reading the room and um, adding new material or taking material away and, and reading what people need during the day. So. Sounds more like an improvisation game theater. Yes, I with the participants. <laughs> well, I mean, for well, uh, twenty years, I guess I worked with uh, with children and teachers, mm. and definitely with children, this is how you work. You cannot plan how they're going to engage with something or work with it or what the outcomes will even be. So I think that's the same way that now I've come to adults. Um, yeah. learning in adult workshops as well. And it's um, beautiful to hear the this process of reflecting afterwards to see what can be done differently next time. It sounds as if it's an always work in progress. So your sessions are never done, maybe. <laughs> and they're never the same. Mm. I, I think also a lot of that has to come from imposter syndrome, which I think a lot of people have um, in that... Uh, Literally, no matter how many trainings I've done, and uh, I've done a lot now, um, I feel like, okay, this is the one where they're going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> mm. 
and uh, and so and uh, so like sometimes when things don't work so well um like for instance actually i've always hated the closing of a workshop mm-hmm. i never really can figure out how to get it to close perfectly you know like the reflection and everybody feeling positive and and sometimes it seems like it ends abruptly because you ran out of time or you ask if anyone has anything to share and it's just crickets you know mm-hmm. you hear nothing and you're like oh right we still have 20 minutes left um so the latest thing that I've designed is a is an activity with the things um which takes me out of the picture actually the things close it for me and uh so a lot of times I do that kind of thing so that I can step away from talking too much during a training which now brings us immediately into the into the <laughs> core what are things ah yes <laughs> what are the things about what are the things um well literally actually I, i always say this if if you were to look underneath your sofa especially if you have children or in your sofa cushions or in your junk drawer or in your sort of you know that place in your office where you just throw everything because you don't know where it goes that those are things they're found objects they're bottle tops and marbles and paper clips and bits of puzzles and bits of lego and acorns and all kinds of things actually everything is about hand size or smaller um mm-hmm. nothing is very big and if you put it all into a big pile it would just look like you should throw it in the bin but i sort it out and then it looks very beautiful and it takes it out of its context it's no longer a nut now it's in a group of brown things you know that can be used for solving a problem or you know representing people in a team or different things like that which brings to my mind two concepts one is macgyver so you can <laughs> use these things to solve a problem yes. and the other one is constellations you can use these things to represent something absolutely yeah metaphors and that's yeah. really what they are actually um is they because we've taken them now out of their context they can be anything and we do have people and and little figurines and animals but a lot of times actually the button becomes the director or an acorn can become the stakeholder you know it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that they use figurative objects in yeah. there Thinking. And you mentioned that you first started to work with kids mm-hmm. and now it doesn't sound like kids <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it unless is. it's the <laughs> kindergarten director. Yeah. No, no, it's definitely still playful and uh, it's not very far from what I what I did with or still do with children. Actually, it's pretty much the same thing. The problems are different, of course. Um, the challenges are different, but the playful way that they engage in it and the way that I represent the materials in front of them is all the same. Could you walk us through a what would be the problem? Why would someone call you and then you come with your box of things? So the the one that we did or that I did the most actually before COVID was what we call the challenge and solution. So uh, a team would say, "Okay, we have a certain." variety of challenges right it's not just one we have large turnover we have a very new team we have a very high stress job and nobody really has gotten a chance to to get to know each other we have a lack of motivation um we have real issues in our communication all kinds of things like that 
And so I work with them and then I create sort of a good question is what I call it actually, but it's more like a prompt. And um, so then on the day of the workshop, um, hopefully I arrive early, but many times uh, participants also arrive early so they get to see me set up. And I have a little trolley full of uh, my objects, which are pre-sorted and a bunch of actually old food boxes, plastic boxes. And I lay them all out in a, in a line and we do a few icebreakers to get everybody in the mood. And then on each table is laid the, the challenge, say, build the barrier to your communication in your team. Mm. And then say a group of four people, four is lovely. I love that uh, number in a, in a small group session. They talk about it a little bit and then they go up to the table, they look through the objects and they start to build it. Um, and because they're building the challenge visually, they can all see it. Whereas it's not just words anymore, you know, it's, ah, that's the barrier. And it's right in front of where we need the communication to be flowing. So how do we get that barrier to, to go away? Mm, and I... First, I was surprised, and actually, it's brilliant to start with building the challenge so that you are on the same page of what you're talking about. Because I think what often becomes a problem is that everyone believes that we are clear and have understand what the challenge is. We need to have better communication. And then everyone starts working on the solution. Yes. And I force them not to think about the solution. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, it's not now. And actually what happens is I organize it so that they build their challenge. They present it to everyone in the room. It might be that people are working on different challenges, but even if they all have built a barrier to your communication, none of them create the same, the same thing. It's really mm -hmm. crazy, even if they're all on the same team. And then we go to lunch and we come back. And I mix it up and then a different group of four people have to solve it. So in, in another way, then they're not too close to it because they didn't build that one. Mm, because you cannot, was it Einstein who said you, we cannot solve problems with the same mindset that we produce them? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's Absolutely. basically that. So you have yeah, to yeah. solve with the same mindset. You can solve another problem, yeah, <laughs> another yeah, yeah. barrier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and it gets very, I mean, It, it all sounds serious now, but it's not at all because we have, you know, you're playing with, with toys and objects. So, you know, I mean, the giraffe is, is the only one who can see over the barrier, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. and it's very playful. And another thing that's really great about it is, well, children don't have this issue, but people, uh, adults do, is we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to our boss is in the room, right? So you're not going to say he's the problem right there, you know, mm -hmm. point at him. But for instance, if you make the boss, you know, the the marble who never sits still and, and, and is all over the place and going super crazy and never goes in one direction, you're talking about him and he knows you're talking about him, but he, it's, he doesn't feel triggered by it at all, which is a really nice uh, sort of side effect of the objects. Yeah, so you can talk about... So about it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so it reminds me a little bit of the idea of Lego serious play where you 
think with your hands and now you think with things. <laughs> what is the difference and where does the magic come in from the things? I, I do have some sort of an idea. So, yeah, I, I uh, was introduced to Lego series play right at the beginning of it, actually, because I was doing a, I was in an accelerator and it was in London. I remember when it happened and, uh, and we were both presenting at a conference and I thought, mm, you know, bad word in there, but anyway, Lego is do, doing what we're doing, what we're trying to do right now. We can't compete with Lego, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. and I do use, I do say, um, in, in some instances, do you know Lego series play when I'm trying to explain what I'm doing? Because there is a lot of correlation there. I mean, it is in a way serious play. Mm -hmm. It is somewhat playing with your hands, although I don't think that that's what we're doing at all. We're more visual thinking. Because even though I say we build your challenge, they're not actually building it you know i mean mm -hmm. they're they're representing it really actually in a in a visual way they're making their thinking visible mm -hmm. we have lego also in in what we use and there's definitely a real play aspect to it but one exciting thing that happens with the things is that if you were a child and you played with lego then as an adult if you pick up lego again it's going to trigger a, a part of your brain Uh, your childhood self sort of and and open up your ways of communicating and thinking and and that's called actually embodied cognition mm -hmm. but if you didn't play with lego then then when you were holding lego it's not really connecting doesn't with say you. anything no <laughs> but if you grab a button or if you grab an acorn and you walked in the woods with your grandmother um, you know, or, you know, you have little animals or, um, I even had a guy have a real reflection when he picked up a ping pong ball of playing with his sister. So I think that is the beauty and the things is also this idea that it sort of transmits you back to that childhood self, which was, who was not afraid to communicate and not afraid of failing and not afraid of just giving it a go. Interesting. I. What I hear is you, it's more, it's almost a process of democratization where you give a larger group of people, of participants, the opportunity to connect to any of those objects in their very own personal way and to create a story around it. Whereas Lego, you only connect to the idea of using Lego, but a brick is a brick and then you have to do something with it. So it, so the things is also a vehicle of team communication because you can, if you pick up then the button or the ping pong ball, you will share your association why you picked that object. So it's a beautiful storytelling exercise, I think, for team members. Happens. Yes, absolutely. And that's what my first icebreaker that I do is, is uh, everyone goes up to the objects and takes one thing that represents them. Mm. Um, or sometimes I say your superpower, you know, your yeah. talent. And then that already is quite a, an eye-opening experience because when they go around the room and tell their thing, their idea or their what, the one thing about themselves, it's shocking to everyone, you know, including the person because sometimes they say things that they're like, oh, I haven't thought about that in 30 years, you know. And so that's that's very exciting. And, and it's 
it's the same question that we that is you know the massive training icebreaker question tell us one thing about yourself that nobody knows you know um, I hate this question <laughs> exactly but actually in this case it, it comes up with crazy questions uh, and and answers actually and i think because you facilitate it so what i dislike about the question tell me one thing that one fun fact about you well i'm not a fun person and <laughs> i'm speaking so much on the podcast that there is no th such thing that nobody knows about me I um, and i find it so intimidating or stressful this question it puts a lot of pressure on me but if you say okay choose from a set of things you're basically providing a container that facilitates to pick something because one idea will come up when you pick up any of those objects yes and they have, to, they have to touch them that's what yeah. i say also like just sort of if you if you can't find one thing or you can't think of something just sort of rummage through the boxes with your hands because already touching them mm. you know in, inspires some ideas and and Exactly. Like I also hate when you're sitting around a room and everybody's staring at you and they ask you a question. You're like, uh, like right now I have to answer it. Whereas this in the way that we're doing it, they sort of have, you know, five, 10 minutes to peruse the material and, and think about what they're going to say. You know? And the, the beauty in the mundane, I think it's um, because we all connect to it. And it's not necessarily related to childhood. I don't remember who it was. Someone who was on the show said that the problem with childhood memories is always connecting to our playful past is that if you had a happy childhood, it's easy to connect to that and to bring this back into the room. But if we have participants who didn't have a happy childhood, maybe it was traumatic, then there's nothing they can connect to. And this brings an energy into the space that is very loaded. It is actually. And I, and I have had moments like that where I thought, okay, maybe I should actually understand more about therapy <laughs> when I have this moment. And, but I have to say that the, the few that I've had where I've, I've had tears when they have this memory, but somehow it is loaded. I agree with you. And, um, but I've never really had it be negative. Somehow it just opens everybody up to more. This is a safe space mm. to say what we want. And, you know, he said that and he cried and, you know, we've, we've never even seen him have an emotion, you know? And so now we're connected to him a little bit differently, you know, or her. So I do agree, but now actually since COVID, a lot of what I'm doing because it's teams haven't ever met physically you know people don't know each other so the icebreaker that i'm doing now really is your superpower mm -hmm. um, what is your superpower what I is one talent that you have that you haven't yet been able to show in your in your work because you've just been thrown into it you know and uh and so you want everybody to know that actually i'm also good at at this and and not like i can touch my nose with my tongue but something that's <laughs> work related you know <laughs> you know so uh definitely something like that yeah and how do you choose the things well two questions <laughs> how do you choose the things and i assume that you have at some point experimented with participants bringing things yes 
<laughs> so how did that go? And um, um, why did are you bringing them now? I still have participants bring things, actually. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But um, if you ask my children, I have three boys and my friends, nothing is off the table. Everything is possible, you know, unless it's edible or, or um, dirty or dangerous paper. I've gone off paper just because it, it's, it doesn't come out of the workshop the same way it went in, you know, they've ripped mm. it up or, or something like that. So I'm also kind of not doing paper anymore, but yeah, I find things everywhere. Um, well, I have three boys, so uh, I, I get them from there, from, uh, from my friends. Uh, I even once just outside my house, somebody put four bags of toys outside their house. And I, with my son, picked them up and brought them inside and cleaned them all up and, so yeah, that's kind of where the where I have the things. I used to have a huge amount and now I've, you know, kind of defined it into my trolley so that it's easy to take back and forth. And then when I have a group, quick question before you get um yeah. to the group. You're not buying the new so it's always used things Absolutely. that had a life yeah. beforehand. Yes. Nothing is new. Nothing maybe is Maybe you maybe you tell us later why this is. Um yeah. Okay. I will. Do you want me to tell you now or go into the whole having groups bring things? Yes. Uh, so tell me now and then uh, and then you explain why the group. Okay. So, yeah, the the whole found object thing is it goes back quite a ways, actually, to when I was designing spaces and, and working with teachers and children. I was studying a Italian education system called Reggio Emilia. And in Reggio Emilia, which is actually the region of, uh, of Italy as well, They have an amazing school system and they are using found and natural and, and all kinds of objects. I mean, new as well, actually, but they're, they're really into using found objects. And so I went there, um, when I was doing my thesis from Finland in, you know, before 2000 and I fell in love with the whole system and they had a center called the Remida Center. And the Remeda Center um, took things from industry, so scrap material from industry. And they had a, a beautiful shop of this bits of plastic and automobile parts and everything. And teachers could come in and, and collect it for their classrooms. And so then their classrooms were just filled with these scraps. And kids were building with them and doing math and language and arts and all kinds of things. And they call them loose parts. So the idea is that you've given it another life and you don't glue it to anything. You reuse it over and over again. So one day it's, you know, uh, an animal on a farm and the next day it becomes part of a, a sculpture that's all built together, you know, but not glued. And so that's where I fell in love with the idea of reuse mm -hmm. and found objects and also Because uh, going into teachers' classrooms, I was designing a lot of classrooms at the time. And they were like, we don't have a budget. Uh, we can't buy material. And I look around their room and their closets are stuffed full. And I'm like, you have so much material here. Just pull it out, you know, and start using it in a different way. Instead of it being one, you know, a stack of puzzles. If you're not using those puzzles, take all the bits out and put them in a big basket and see 
put it in the building area, you know, the construction area and see what kids do with it, you know. So that's kind of where the, how it happened, the found, the found objects. And now they're really tiny with think with things. But when I was designing playgrounds and classrooms, we did really big loose parts on the playground, especially. Beautiful. And then basically the children would just grab things and build their own playgrounds with what they found. Yes, exactly. I mean, just like the adults, they, they go up to the material and they decide what they want to, what it, they want it to be today, you know. Beautiful. Yeah. And then you ask your participants sometimes or all the time to bring their things. Not all the time. I mean, it really depends on the group. Smaller mm -hmm. groups, actually, I don't. Definitely when I have a group of 80 or like 150 or 200, then it's nicer to have them bring some objects because then we have a bigger variety and I don't, you know, my trolley is not that big. Um, and I find several things are good about that. One is it gets them into a sort of a playful mindset before they arrive because they have to find these things. Not everyone is as great at bringing, <laughs> bringing them as as others so i do find that the children are great at bringing objects by the way but uh, adults sometimes you know i get lipstick and makeup and wax candles and toilet paper tubes you know i'm like okay i, I get it you know but so i do have now a sort of a uh, an ongoing of this is the things not to bring <laughs> so it, it's that's fun and then it's just also that it's uh, so they don't take them back they leave them Mm -hmm. So that's how I'm also collecting more and more, more and more things. And I would have to say that well, it's getting better, but about half are, are useful. Sort of the rest uh, are going in the recycling. What makes them useful? Well, I think one is if they can be reused. I, I would mm -hmm. have to say that's actually my main thing because I don't want to put my own bias or objective on it because somebody else might see something in that object that I that I don't so if it's reusable uh, if it's a, a bottle top that's clean or a little piece of a of a toy then definitely I keep it um I don't keep like I said I don't keep any paper anymore I used to and definitely don't keep makeup <laughs> wax candles also kids tend to like to scrape the wax out and makes a big mess so yeah Anything that's not messy. I once had a woman, I, a group of 200, it was teachers actually, she brought blueberries and she put them, so they come and they sort them out, right? They, they put them in the boxes. So she bought a bunch of real blueberries and she put them in a blue box and I didn't notice, put them in my trolley and, and you know, a month later, I brought blueberries. And <laughs> mm. So yeah, nothing edible either. Yeah. I love the, the contrast that I'm hearing of you working with children and working with adults and professionals. So working on their communication strategies and working on designing a playground. And I hear you designing classrooms. And I wonder what it means for designing workshop spaces or offices. Yes. So what can... Adults, professionals learn, what have you learned about the professional, air quotes, life from your work with children and maybe even vice versa? Um, well, definitely the whole engagement aspect, because when I first started working with children to design a playground, actually when Think With Things sort of began, 
was I took in a bunch of white paper and rulers and all the architecture stuff, you know, to a group of children. And I said, okay, we're now we're going to design our dream playground. And about three fourths of them started drawing some, you know, really enthusiastically others, little tiny little things, a few of them, not at all. And so the next time I went back, I took a big box of objects, found objects. And I said, okay, now we're going to build our dream playground. And I like, actually, before I even finished the sentence, they were, they had already dove into the materials and were pulling them out and playing with them and setting them up. Um, and the same exact thing happens with adults. I find that they quickly get into the workshop uh, way faster than if we started with, you know, paper and pencil and sticky notes and flip charts and, and all of that. So, so that's one thing that I definitely learned from the children that I, that I bring in. Um, have I learned from adults that I bring into the children? Can I say no? <laughs> you may. I would have been surprised, I must say. Um, I thought I'd ask anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's easier. Well, it's easier and harder with children. I would have to say, I would have to say that it's actually, I have to have my, what do you say, your chickens in a row? Or I have to have my planning and my my wording down better with children because they mm. will they'll find you out you know if you're not if you don't know what you're talking about so I can wing it more I think in an adult workshop than I can with the with the children um so maybe that's one thing that I've learned between the two I have to say that I do is what a lot of people ask me like aren't your workshops really different for adults than they are with children they're not that different especially in the beginning I used to actually have the same prompt um, I, like I had these ones called think like a cards and they were think like a tree, think like a turtle, think like a butterfly. And they create sort of a theater with the, with the objects and with the, and a story. It's kind of a storytelling activity. And I, I do that a lot with adults as well. I haven't done it post COVID very much because we have other issues, but, um, I would say I do the same with adults and children. The real difference is, is that the children's plays and, and stories are much more detailed and vivid and out of the box and innovative, you know. So, and they, yeah, maybe that's not what I should say to adults when I'm actually doing the team building because they're like, ah, so, you know, a four-year-old <laughs> performs better has than better, you. Has a better, yeah, exactly. Has a better result. But anyway, yeah, no. And when you say better results, how would you measure that? Because I could also imagine that a more complex, vivid, too much out of the box story is more difficult to bring home and to make, to turn into something concrete. Because at the end of the day, I guess you're not there to write a children book yes, yes. <laughs> or a screenplay. <laughs> well, I think when we do the think like a one, the think like a cards, that is really just about opening up and, mm -hmm. and, being theatrical and and coming out of your box i mean they they present it and that is our end you know i mean uh, it's very important that's one thing i will say actually in in all of this is it's very important for adults and children to present their thinking mm. not just to think all day and then ha huh, we're done but to actually have a chance to Act it out or 
tell it or present it in a way, it's it's a really important end. And I think a lot of times that is the concrete ending. Um, if, for instance, in a, in an adult uh, workshop, if the takeaways, if the objectives aren't just to have a fun day together, then yeah, we have you know, we flow in a different way and we don't do that one. We'll do more of the challenge solution activity or, or something else, definitely. But they're more in the doing and then debrief. Yes, exactly. Yeah, an action, an action plan. Yeah. yeah. At the end, you know, who's going to take this on? What are the first steps kind of thing? Um, yeah. Then it gets a little bit more serious towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> I guess then some stickies will still come in. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, you know, I don't. I'm anti-sticky notes. I do use flip charts, but I use the piece of paper as the platform for our building on the table. Mm. Uh, I really don't like sticky notes. I don't have them in my toolbox at all. Why is that? Well, when I just, I don't know. I, I guess it's just because we're not thinking in that way. You know, we're using objects. I want them to try to use the objects as much as possible. You know, if you're going to make an idea cluster, make it out of objects on a on the table kind of thing and, and move them around. One thing I do have to say also that's different between children and adults is, and the reason why I put the paper on the table now is we need to label as adults. We need to say this is what this is because it's not clear enough for everyone to understand that that's who that is, you know. So... So they label on the table and on the piece of paper. And I've never really had the, the need for sticky notes. I never thought, wow, I wish I would have brought a bunch of yellow and green and blue sticky notes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if I understand correctly, then you would bring the ping pong ball that would represent something and place it on the map or in the cluster. Yes. And... Because of the earlier conversations around this ping pong ball, the group will remember what it represents. Absolutely. They can label it there. Like, for instance, yeah. if, they, if they're going to do the one where they switch tables, so there's going to be another group coming to your table and, and solving your challenge. Mm -hmm. and it's very important that they clearly represent it. And then, therefore, they use words and, and things like that. But we do have them presented as well to yeah. the group. So I guess, I, I mean, it could be like using sticky notes, but they're just writing beside the object on the, on yeah. the table. It might also be liberating to just think in a different way, because when we, I think 99% of the population, when they hear workshops, they think sticky notes. <laughs> exactly. And then not to have that um, and to work around that. I actually... Maybe a hundred episodes ago, um, ago, I recorded a conversation about how to facilitate without sticky notes. Without sticky notes. <laughs> so it was worth an entire 90 minutes conversation. It's, yeah, so it is to, a thing. I'll have to go back and listen to it, actually. But uh, I haven't really ever really seen the need for them. Yeah. Good. A lot of times I actually even give paper and pencil little tablets for those who think while writing, you know, because we're not all, I mean, in fact, actually, Think with things is kind of coming back to all the ways that we learned as children. You know, mm -hmm. so there is the logical thinker. There is the the one who needed to build with their hands, you know, to to think and the and the ones who write. And so I, I do provide those 
possibilities. But I'd have to say that very few people write yeah. a lot anyway during a session. Um, Beautiful. That's good. What makes a workshop fail, in your opinion? So fail for the my client or fail for me, actually? So this is a question. I'm not sure I've ever had one fail for a client, actually, happily. They always seem to work out, even though, again, in the beginning, people are looking at the toys and looking at me like, and their watch, like, <laughs> really? We're doing this all day long. And then I get really, oh, you know. But by the end, the same people are on the floor and I can't get them to stop playing. But uh, what makes it fail? I would say that, um, like I mentioned in the beginning, the not closing it well. I feel, not that I've ever had any negative feedback about that, but to me, it doesn't feel like it went well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of this is from our natural, humane, what, do, what would we even call it? Like, So you, you have a great holiday, let's say. And the whole entire holiday was wonderful, except for the plane trip home was horrendous. And for some reason now, this holiday has a bad taste in your mouth because of the it didn't end well. So that stresses me out is when I when I've run out of time and I don't have a good end to a yeah. workshop. Um, and that's why I've designed something so that so that I'll never have that again. I think what makes it fail for me as a as a designer. Uh, not a not a facilitator is if I didn't get anything out of it mm. like nothing new came to my mind nothing there's nothing I need to it just sort of was like meh <laughs> you know I don't know if you've ever had a workshop like that but it's like okay I did it now I'm gonna go home and get something to eat and go to bed you know I mean uh, if I'm not super inspired and energized and like oh my mm. gosh I really want to redo this or you know or do that next time or or i can't wait to get home and go through the images and and send them to them or you know things like that that for me i think is a failure a failed workshop on my part if i come away with eh, you know not really a a lot from it beautiful and what i hear is uh the lot would is a creative inspiration it's something tangible Or input for the next workshop and the next iteration? Yeah, I think so. I think I'm, well, I say I'm a designer, but I'm actually, I think, just a very holistic problem solver. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I really love, and I'm, I'm extrinsically motivated also, actually. So I can't see my own problem and fix it. I don't, <laughs> for some reason, I can't do that. But um, I think very few of us are able <laughs> to do that, if we're yeah. very honest. But, but if, I, if I see a, a problem or... I see that, you know, the engagement didn't go exactly smoothly or, or, you know, there could be some tool or something that makes this work better. That's really exciting to me. And then I'm like, okay, I could solve that. You know, I could design something that makes that work better. And, uh, and you had said something about designing classrooms and playgrounds and what might that look like as an office. Um, I dream of designing an office. I have plans and books about designing meeting spaces and offices. And I would love to think that my participants go back to their meeting rooms and add things to their boring boardroom. I don't think they have, maybe. But yeah, that is a, I think if I have a big sort of aspiration, a big dream, it would be to completely rethink how a, a meeting is 
conducted. Designed. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. What would be the main ingredient? A part of the things, obviously. I mean, there's space. So so there's a great, I had mentioned Reggio Emilia, uh, this education philosophy, and uh, they have an amazing sort of theory or, or way of working, which is called the environment as the third teacher. Mm-hmm. So they design the environment to teach as well. And a lot of what they say is if, if children aren't, if they're misbehaving or they're not engaging or they're not really uh, involved in, in what you're teaching, it's because your environment isn't working for them. Mm. And I've always been a freelancer. I've never actually worked in an office, which that was really hard when I started doing training. But I go into those rooms, you know, uh, all white walls, all a white table, black chairs. And I'm thinking, there's absolutely nothing in here that makes me feel creative or innovative or like sharing or communicating at all. So I, I think the main ingredient is the space, yeah. is making the space work for you and, uh, you know, yeah. and not, not filling it with uh, Sharpie markers and sticky notes. That's <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, this does make the space more approachable. It reminds me of two things. One is a book that I read that got me to paint all my walls in my apartment all in different colors. Okay. And I don't remember the name of the book, but basically what she said was it is there's research that shows that there are material things that make us happy. And one of those is color. So if we know that color makes us happy, why would we sit in wide rooms? Yes, yes. Uh, oh, this makes sense. So <laughs> I have my my kitchen yeah. in bright orange and then a living room in, in blue. Yeah. So that's one thing. Okay, why don't we actually paint offices in color? And the other thing that comes to my mind, and this could actually be an interesting experiment because it relates also to the things, and I discussed this with a previous podcast guest, if the participants come in and there's no arrangement, there are no chairs in a specific order, no tables, and you allow them to just create the space in which they want them to have the workshop. How mm. would that look like? Yes. And what are they coming up with? That would be super exciting, actually. I did this one uh, workshop. It was like 200 people. It was just, it was before COVID. And um, I was responsible for sort of the games in between the sessions. So they were all breaking up and going into sessions. And I did something called floor play. Um, it sounds really <laughs> really raunchy actually if you say it wrong but uh it was where we were in this corridor and uh and they asked if I wanted tables and chairs and I didn't so it was just a carpeted corridor and they had to get on the floor and make these runways you know out of kind of ramps and bowls and and uh and play this game on the floor which again makes people a bit uncomfortable in the beginning and definitely if you can't get on the floor physically then you can bring a chair over I mean I'm not you know I'm not going to force you down if you (laughs) if you can but um but yeah it was funny and then you know the ones who were the biggest sort of what are we doing you know when it was time to go to lunch I was like okay you know now it's time to clean up and and continue and they were like oh wait (laughs) the ball is almost you know going in and so 
it's quite funny. It's quite funny like that. And I think, okay, it doesn't work in every situation, but definitely, and this is a way that, that uh, I work on designing classrooms as well is that, um, you know, children don't want to come in and all sit at a, at a tiny adult chair at a, at a tiny adult table um, to learn. They might want to go over in a corner and, and sit on a beanbag or yeah. somewhere else. So, in the office is the same. Absolutely. We're the same. We are the same as we yeah. were. So, yeah. Wonderful. And it also, it, if we have more flexibility, it also sparks different conversations. Right? Mm. And I think that's one big difference between the online and the offline workshops is how many people and whom do you meet when you stand up and walk to the coffee machine or the fridge or the loo? these serendipitous moments that you cannot design for. Yes. This is a, I don't know if you've read the Steve Jobs book. No. Uh, he says this in his book. And I, I worked with uh, Bozar here, a museum here, and, and we took some of his ideas. And so he, when he redesigned uh, Apple, mm -hmm. he made one sort of coffee area so that the, The management had to come down to coffee and the and the workers had to come up for coffee. They all had to come. And what he said is innovation happens at the coffee machine. So that is where the management meets the engineers, you know, and they and they have this conversation, whereas normally they wouldn't. And I think that's really important is that we we have these these moments of serendipitous moments where ideas kind of spark and happen. And definitely Yeah, the online is hard for that. You know, uh, online was really hard for Think With Things also because, uh, you know, you're everybody's playing. I had them playing with objects, but they're here on their desk and, and I don't, I can't see it, you know. I mean, uh, so we did some fun things, but uh, I'm happy that we're back to. Yeah. Real yeah and the technology is only now catching up. Yeah, with yeah. using our phones as cameras or being equipped actually to mm. um, yeah to share that and i think um to come back to steve jobs there's there was even a study that those employees with either corner offices or offices close to the coffee machine or to the water cooler are the most connected ones <laughs> I think so. so randomly they checked and they did this, I think, with social graphs, social network theory. And it's because everyone just stops by there and they have more touch points to people. So they're usually more connected. They come up with better ideas. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned before that, um, and I can totally connect to this moment where you arrive with your things to a new group. I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> how are they going to to react yeah. so um this moment of doubt where you have to be courageous and i think every facilitator or designer yes yes <laughs> can relate to that when we it's like having prepared a gift for someone and then they unwrap it and like are they going to like it <laughs> yes, exactly yeah, yeah yeah so how do you where do you think is this coming from and how do you deal with it Well, I mean, definitely the people who I, I planned it with know a little bit about what's gonna, what to expect, you know, but, uh, but definitely they know they're coming to a team day. And like you said, a lot of people associate a team day, you know, with tables and 
paper and pencil and bottles of water and flip charts everywhere and a big presentation on the board. I also don't really uh, ever have a, a PowerPoint or any kind of presentation. So they're kind of like, they walk in and there's this long line of about a hundred little black boxes with objects in there, which many times because it's morning, they think it's snacks. So they're a bit disappointed when they go up <laughs> and it's toys and, and objects. Um, I breathe through it. I don't know. I mean, again, I think maybe we all have this imposter syndrome, but I guess I have done it enough now that I, I can just keep telling myself, you know, they will like it. They will like it eventually, you know, like just breathe through it, just smile and, and mm. chat with them, you know. Sometimes also, like, so I just did one in, in, in October in, in Poland with a, a group that are making the new European visa. It was 60 people and they're all retired military and police officers. Wow. So they walk in and I just, I remember really in detail, this one guy, really big muscles, big guy actually. And he was like, what are we doing today? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, we're playing. And uh, and I I sort of went the opposite with him. Like I said, you know, uh, and he's like, I'm not comfortable with that. And I said, I'll give you the hardest, the hardest questions then. You know, like I kind of like played with him a little bit. Like, uh, and he was one at the end who really came up to me and said, I, I had the best day ever. And uh, I didn't think. I would at all. Like, I didn't want to do this. I didn't, but he's like, I, it was wonderful. And I didn't realize that everyone around me was so creative. Mm. You know, and also the, the director said in the beginning, you know, you're working with a group of people who are not creative at all. And, uh, when, and that's something I just don't believe anyway. I mean, everyone is creative, everyone. So, um, so I think, yeah, I just breathe through it and continue on and, and I try to, I mean, I have also had sessions where uh, I just had one again, also in October, where I have the people who don't even come in. They sit out, you know, in the corridor on their laptops because their their work is too important, you know, I guess. And I think I'm getting more and more confident to go out and say, hey, you know, you haven't yet joined a group, you know, do you yeah. want to engage, you know, and um, and sometimes they don't and and sometimes they do and uh and then it's their problem and not yours because absolutely. obviously there are some issues <laughs> yeah. i remember the one the worst presentation i ever gave actually because uh, i hate presenting and talking to people is uh I, I was in a group uh and they were teachers and my sister was in the audience and she's in education as well and i was going through my bit you know and i this woman in front really didn't get it and she had this you know negative and scowl on her face the whole time and I was like focused on her and trying to make her get it you know whereas I sort of lost myself then I, I lost the presentation I you know I lost the rest of the room because I was focused on this one woman you know mm. and uh and at the end my sister came to me and she said if you would have looked over here there was a teacher who was really getting it she was almost coming out of our seat and she said and next time you present present to her because it'll give you more energy and help you through it you know because 
you probably aren't going to ever get through to that to that one person. So beautiful yeah. advice. Yeah, it was really good. Mm-hmm. So I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some that are helpless, and then yeah. especially if it's a presentation and not a workshop. In yes. a workshop, if one person is not playing along, literally, it might be different. And what stood out to me when you explained the big guy in Poland <laughs> coming towards you and asking, what are we doing? Yes. That you didn't try to sugarcoat it and to say, oh, it's kind of serious play or we're thinking with our hands and we're thinking with things. No, you were blunt and said, we play. <laughs> exactly. All day long. Yeah. Is this your strategy to deal with these kind of people who would be more critical? What is your advice to others who might not dare? Well, I think so from the from the very beginning, I always tried to just speak to what I know. And so like if I was working with teachers or or working with the commission or working with corporates, I'm not going to Pretend like I know what you do, because I don't actually, um, but I do know what I do. And so for me to make it sound scientific or trainery or any of that, you know, I mean, I, it would also just make me feel very uncomfortable. So I'm making it very playful and and about designing something and uh, communicating in a visual way. Then that's, you know, that's my expertise. So I, I, I get really uncomfortable if I start talking about things I, I'm actually not great at, you know, or don't know that much about. So I think it's just a a uh, survival tactic. <laughs> I don't know. So I have, again, there's different things I've designed. So I do have, um, and when I'm doing a group like that, so when I did that group, I do have little um, signs that explain a little bit more the think with things philosophy. Um, so that if people do want to go a little bit deeper into it, they can read those. Those are on the table with the objects. And I do talk about embodied cognition, you know, and connecting with your childhood self when we're doing the, the first activity, you know, and then I talk about visual thinking when we get into the bigger activity. So I think every time I do a workshop, I get better at, at that. Uh, Presenting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever be good at it, but I get better anyway. Yeah. And it, isn't it funny that this is a part that you wouldn't need for children? No, no, not at all, actually. I mean, uh, because they immediately, so the, we have these sort of words that we use in, in Think With Things, which is collect, connect, and communicate. So mm-hmm. You, co- you collect your materials that you need and then you connect them to some type of learning, whether that's, you know, in a business or in education. And then you, it's most important is that you get to communicate it. A capture, sorry, I forgot capture. Capture and communicate. Capture is when you've, you either read it, write it down or you take a picture or, you know, you've discussed it and then you communicate it. Mm. And kids do that naturally. I mean, if you give them the tools, especially, you know, you give them an iPad, they are, they get all their materials together. They do the things that you've wanted them to do, you know, think like a tree or whatever they're going to do. And then they, they capture it, you know, with their, with the iPad or they draw a picture of it and, and then they start talking about it. I mean, it's, it's, 
and I, those have all come from working with children. Um, and we sort of have to, you know, not push, but we sort of have to flow our adult workshop in that way so that they, they do it naturally. Interesting. And still, I remember that you said in the beginning that it's easier for you to wing it when you work with adults than when you work with children. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? What are then the moments that children would call you out? Oh, yeah, that's a hard one, isn't it? I think it's primarily when I'm, not when I'm doing a theatrical one, but if I'm designing a, a playground with them, for instance, I'm, they'll definitely have questions that I need to be, you know, on the ball for. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't know, actually, I'm having trouble thinking about exactly how what that would look like. But I think uh, you just don't want to misstep with the kids, right? Because you'll the their attention span is much less. Mm. So, so therefore, you know, you have to make sure that yeah, you're True. going in the right direction or something. Or I don't know. I'm, I'm, yeah, I have to think. I don't know. That's for the next podcast. So I have to think about the question that. Uh, <laughs> that yeah. Why? Uh, why listening to you? Yes, the attention span. So you cannot take too much time to explain things and to make them too cognitive. So come to the point. And I can imagine, I just spent the weekend with the kids of my brother, yeah. that if you're trying to sugarcoat something or trying to tell a white lie or make promises that potentially you're not going to keep. <laughs> yeah. So whom are we designing this for? Or oh, your, your future playground. And when can we start? When will it open? Oh, um, maybe. Um... No, but for sure, actually, that is one thing. So when I am doing a workshop like that, designing something for, for a school, or I did once a, a stage, a camp, where kids got to design their own room. And so I made sure in the beginning with the parents, like if we're going to, if the child is going to go through this process, you have to promise you know, sign here on the dotted line that you will do something with his room, whatever it is that he's asked, you know, and what is your budget? And so it's the same thing with the school, like, you know, you're hiring me to create something that we don't know what it's going to be yet, but you're going to have to promise that you're going to make some this, whatever they've come up with. Um, because yeah, they, they, they know, you know, is this really going to happen? And you promised. <laughs> this is going to happen, you know. So for sure, actually, that's something that you have to do beforehand to make sure that. Um, but that's the same thing, you know, when I'm doing uh, I'm sort of uh, professional development with, with teachers and it's about bettering the environment or bettering the playground or bettering the teacher's, you know, experience. That's something that the director also has to promise, like, the teachers are going to go through this day and they're going to come up with some ideas and you're, you, you need to, to act on them. Because if you, if every time you have a, a team building, it's the same with the, with the adult workshops, you know, if we do the challenge solution, make sure that some of those solutions get, get to happen because they've spent a the whole day on, on this training, you know. And that's why workshops oh. very often have a bad key. reputation. The other thing that, came to my mind thinking of children and why it's more difficult. They actually remember. Mm. So if at some point, 
in the at the beginning of the workshop, you explain what the agenda, what the flow is. Okay, first we're going to do this and then that, and then we close with whatever. If you're not closing that way, they will call you out. Yes, absolutely. You ran out of time and you said we were going to go outside and collect objects and we don't have time for it. They would say, wait a minute. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you better you better watch out what you promise and yeah. <laughs> don't make too much of an agenda beforehand. No, no, no. Beautiful. If someone in the audience would like to bring more play or things or tangible equivalents to sticky notes into their work, what would be your one advice? Like I said earlier, it would be my dream that after a session, they simply bring those objects into their meeting rooms or into their own workshops because they, they work so easily and they're not hard to find. And this was one of my worries when I first made Think With Things was that it's it's really simple to to duplicate, but it doesn't really feel like many people have. So I think it's, again, the combination of the things and, and how how I facilitated it, we'll say, <laughs> you know, but definitely, and that's the same thing that I say to teachers, you know, when you, even when you're doing math, instead of just giving a paper and pencil, give a box of found objects and have them, the kids who think that way, have them use those. Yeah. Yes, it is easy to replicate. And that's why you're a designer. Right? Yes, you're using them as a tool and everyone could do that. And I think that's the beauty of the facilitation world that we're all doing the same things anyway. We're all running the same activities and still the way we are doing them, the way we are framing them and inviting the group to participate is totally different. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think also my favorite workshops are the ones I do with other facilitators. I love doing a, a tag team facilitation. It's just, it's super fun because you bring both of your own ideas and techniques in and, and you bounce off of each other. And, and uh, you know, especially if things are going over or too short, then while one's giving the presentation, the other one can be like, oh, wait, I should, you know, throw in something here. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. beauty of collaboration. And co-creation. <laughs> Thank you, Jules. Thank you. This has been lovely. The extra inspiration. Is there anything that you would have wished to share, but we didn't get to? I feel like I've shared way kind of overshared, but I, <laughs> I think it's good. I mean, I learned also about myself. You know, that's another thing about talking, right? You learn about yourself while you're while you're talking. So. Um, so no, it's been wonderful. It's been a great experience. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And we'll put all the links to how to reach you and to work with you in the show notes. Thank you for staying tuned and for listening to the show. I know how busy you are and I appreciate that you're sharing your two most valuable resources with me and my guest, your time and your attention. If you're looking for more conversation with other facilitators and for a community of practice, why don't you join Never Done Before, the community that I have built and many of my podcast guests are already members. Visit neverdonebefore.org and I wish to see you there.